Hello, everybody. Welcome back or welcome to our first episode of our podcast. Woo! We've got myself, Tina, Stacey and Maria, who you've who you've heard for in, in the past uh, trailers. So thanks, everybody, for joining us. We're really, really excited to be here and really excited to start chatting. Today, we're going to start with a really great topic of UX and psychology. We thought this would be a really good starter topic because it helps us bed in to UX really easily. And it sort of helps everybody, regardless of what um, you know sector you're in, what industry you're in. And we want to sort of just just have a really open open conversation about UX and, and psychology, and even about the history of UX as well. So yeah, let's get started. I am a cognitive psychologist by training, so I have a master's in cognitive neuroscience and a PhD in cognitive psychology. So psychology was something I always I was passionate about for many, many years. And I was actually unaware that UX existed. I didn't know what that was for many, many years of my career, even though I was doing things that can now be considered uh, UX research, which I found quite funny. So it's funny because I knew about Don Norman before I knew about his work on UX, because as, as some of you might know, Don Norman is a cognitive scientist and he used to work with Tim Shalit who happened to be the supervisor of my master's supervisor. So I have a bit of an overlap between me and Don Norman in some, <laughs> some weird way. Which, uh, I, uh, yeah, so I was a big fan of his work before he started working in UX. And I only started realizing about the, about the overlap between psychology and design when I worked at Arctic Shores with Stacy. So Stacy was the person that made me realize how much psychology and UX have in common. I remember just having some conversations about what I was doing before and she was talking about her work and I realized that what she was trying to do was actually applied psychology. And that was like a big, like a light bulb moment for me. What about you, Stacey? Like to like hearing Maria saying something like that. Did you know that it was applied psychology or was that just a, a fluke? <laughs> I think... I think I, I had an understanding quite early on that it was all about human behavior and, and how humans kind of interact with software or, or anything really. And I, I gathered that there was some psychology behind it, specifically cognitive, because I worked with cognitive psychologists. Before Maria started at Arctic Shores, I was already working closely with a cognitive psychologist. So I definitely saw the, the overlap, maybe not as much until... I actually started working with researchers and, and finding out more about it and, and exactly how they research. And I think one of the, the key things was th the fact that so much of the terminology and, and the principles kind of comes from uh, psychology. Like, you know, they, they run tests, they gather metrics, they, they observe behavior. Like it's all things that psychologists have been doing for a long time. Actually, funnily enough, um, dating back to like 500 BC with the ancient Greeks which is quite funny because Maria's from Greece. It's really interesting hearing both of your points on the psychology aspects of it because I came I came into the psychology of UX I mean as you know for the for my introduction in the trailer and as you both know because we've known each other a few years I, I fell into UX. I never knew what UX was. I, I completely fell into it. And on the morning of my interview at the BBC, I had to frantically Google the word the word UX. And it's it's really interesting because I wish I wish I had a podcast like this, a first episode of a podcast like this to help me. If I had somebody to say, stop what you're doing and go read about psychology first and then come back to UX. 
I would be a much more advanced UX designer today than I am because I sort of you get thrown into UX and and it's and they they sort of tell you oh it's about wireframing and you know all these kind of hard skills and actually it's more about like no they're the easy bits like the wireframing and things like that the, the hard bits is actually the mindset the understanding the psychology behind it like if I had somebody just to say just take a couple of days out read a few psychology books understand people understand human interaction the empathy that you gain from that is so helpful but it's so rewarding it's such a it's a rewarding experience and I think the only the only time I ever really learned about psychology or theory was when I was in um, so I'm a, I'm a graphic designer by trade I guess you'd call it and we studied color theory and only then was it a bit of an insight to oh, you know, the slightest change in the shade of red can make you feel love or danger. And it's a really similar, it's a similar aspect in design because, you know, we very, we, you know, you've got a red button that symbolizes badness or, you know, errors or whatever it is. And I think that goes back to the psychology side as well. So, and this will be something for a later episode where I bang on about how graphic design is also UX. But it, it is that really, it, it's so, oh, it's so overlapping and so complicated, but so uncomplicated at the same time. It's a, it's a funny one. So yeah, anybody listening, please dive into psychology, put your pens down, put everything down and jump into psychology first, because it, the understanding is really, really useful. I, I do think I was definitely quite lucky. Um, just going back to like Maria saying that we met at Arctic Shores. And that's where she kind of had the realisation with psychology and the overlap with with, uh, user research. I do think that it really benefited me to be in an environment so early in my career where there was a big focus on on psychology and everything we did had to have some sort of reasoning behind it. And we had to consider like human behaviours and accessibility and and how people are going to play it and making sure that it was fair as well because Arctic Shores essentially what they do is recruitment apps and games but they're all they're based on like psychometrics and psychology so it's all about finding if you're a good fit for a company when you apply and a big part of that obviously is like the psychology behind it of like how persistent you are for example or how risk averse you are and just kind of working in that environment and, and realizing how much psychology came into that and how, you know, basically the whole company, its foundations was set on psychology. You can kind of see how that, that should translate to any app or software you do, essentially. You should always be considering the psycho- psychological aspects that you, you're giving to your user whether yeah you know whether you 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 make an app too long and it's really boring and really you know and and kind of like or you give too much information and it's kind of like something called cognitive overload where you're just kind of giving too much information and the user can't really um, comprehend it or whether you you know whether you're confusing a user because you you're doing certain things or things look too similar um I'm sure Maria could expand on that (laughs) If we just go back to the start a bit, like for me, there's a there are two different relationships that you have between UX and psychology. One of them is, as we said, the one of understanding humans, understanding how we think, how we see the world. Like, the, for example, the way we we perceive the world is not the way the world actually is. 
And that's something that artists have been exploiting for years and years. We wouldn't be able to create art like cinema or so many things if we if we had a basic understanding of how we recreate the world in our minds. So that's, that's one aspect. So for example, uh, when you create a prototype or you, you during brainstorming, you can start with psychology because some people have already done the research for you. So you, you have some basic understanding. So, you, so you, it's like doing your secondary kind of research. What do we already know? What are the limitations? And you use that when you create like, your first prototype. And that already saves you some research that you probably need to do further on, on the line. And the second bit is mostly for actually UX research, but everybody in UX is supposed to do research. So, and it has to do with methodology and understanding the limitations, like how do we measure behavior? What's the best way to do that? And uh, being able to think, understand things like validity and like, are you measuring what you think you're measuring? Psychologists, because they had to, well, do a really difficult task, like measure human behavior, it's something insanely hard. It's like one of the hardest tasks we've got. People sometimes say, like something is rocket science, but actually psychology in some ways is much more complicated because humans are just so diverse. So psychology does give you access to those tools and the knowledge you need to conduct better research. So it's like there's two, for me, those are the two main ways psychology can inform UX. So it's not just, uh, it's not just understanding how human users and humans think, but it's also finding a better way to, to measure the behavior and measure our impact in terms of what we do. I feel like I've just had a light bulb moment there listening to you saying that because you're so right. I've always just put it down to like understanding and empathizing and emotions and, and kind of things. But you're right, there's the actual putting it in practice as well. And, the, you know, there's the input and then the output. And I've never really thought about how the psychology affects the output as well. Wow. Epiphany moment for me. I love that. That's really cool. But psychology is like it's, it's uh, people tend to call it psychological science now because mm. you know it's the kind of thing for many years people wouldn't have thought psychology they automatically thought of Freud psychotherapy and like I remember when I, when I was a, an undergraduate in psychology people kept joking oh you cannot read my mind like no <laughs> or you can you can psychoanalyze me now that's but thankfully, over the last few years, people have started realizing psychology and commerce is so much more. So we've got, uh, I, I recently gave a talk about this. There are different areas of psychology and they all have a different contribution to UX. So I don't know if you, I could just go a quick like uh, run through all of them. So for example, we all know about cognitive psychology. So cognitive psychology is the scientific study of mental processes, such as, you know, attention, um, language, memory, action planning. And all those things are really important in uh, how we perceive the world and behave. And most, most people in UX are somewhat familiar with all those things. Things like uh, the cognitive overload that Stacey mentioned earlier, that's related to cognitive psychology. But then you've got social psychology, which is another massive field and tries to understand how you know, social aspects affect human behavior. For example, social psychologists try to understand how our feelings, our behavior and thoughts can be influenced by the presence of other people or the absence of other people. There's differential psychology has to do with how we differ in our behavior, you know, because as we all know, we're all different, with different personalities um, and try to understand how we differ in our behavior and what processes underlie those differences. And, and we have things like cyber psychology, which is a relatively newer field that has to do, it's kind of closer to human computer interaction and potentially UX. So that tries to understand how we interact with technology and particularly the internet. 
other areas and you got clinical psychology. Yes, there's actually an overlap there. And that takes us like closer to things like accessibility because understanding the limitations some people might have in the way they perceive the world, they think, and lead us to create better tools and better experiences for them. And I'm also like thinking like developmental psychology, if you work like on products that have to do with children or older adults, because developmental psychology, you know, we don't stop growing once we reach 18. We keep growing and changing our cognition and behavior throughout our lifespan. If you're just a UX or you want to go into UX and you've never really done anything like psychology, just take an intro course. Uh, there's loads of free of them in Coursera. And just to get a general idea of like what psychology is about, I think this is a good start. I didn't mention all the areas of psychology. This is just a quick overview. There's just so many and they all have a, a way that they can contribute to UX. I would go as far to say it's good to read UX books that are out there, like the the design of everyday things is one of them. And, and it's good to kind of read those and get your head around UX. But in my experience, and this might be personal, but I find it way more insightful and interesting to read books around psychology than I do actual UX books, because I feel like a lot of the stuff that you learn in these UX books, you, you tend to learn these things while whilst you're on the job. So whilst I'm working, I tend to pick up a lot of these things that these, you know, the, the books that I've read around UX. And a lot of it, I now that I am a couple of years into, you know, like eight years into my career, a lot of it I've, I've, I kind of already know about to some degree. Whereas the psychology books, I feel like it, it, it's an area that it's, I, I just feel like I'm constantly learning something new and it's not something that I can just learn on the job either. It's something that I have to go out and research and, and kind of do that myself. So I think it's important if you're a new UX designer to read UX books, but I think there's also a, a huge importance, especially if you're more of a senior designer to read psychology books rather than just sticking, sticking with UX. I did want to say, because this is a bit of a no bullshit podcast, so I did want to kind of go into, because I'm... I know definitely like when obviously I've worked in I've worked a lot around psychology before and I think one of my frustrations with psychology is definitely and I'd be interested to hear your opinion on this Maria I feel like a lot of psychology tries to put people into boxes like I remember having a conversation where uh, I was told I was extroverted and I knew I wasn't. I know that I'm both. I know that I can be extroverted in social settings, but I also know that I get very, I need my alone time as well. And I kind of distinguish that there's there's like a balance. And, and I think it's pretty hard to put people into boxes. And I think that's one of the things that people bring up with psychology is that they don't like the fact that to a degree you are kind of put in, it's, it's, maybe it's odor psychology where you definitely try and put people into boxes and I don't think people like that so how, how do you kind of feel about that in regards to like designing products and you could almost say a persona is putting somebody in a box in a sense so how do you kind of get around that kind of more skeptical side of psychology I guess oh this is I've I'm gonna I fucking hate personas I hate personas I, I personally prefer audience segmentations, which sounds more worse, right? It sounds worse like segmenting in the audiences. But what I love about the, the segmentations is you segment it by behaviours because behaviours are, they're so diverse. Like if you've got somebody who's a Ninja Turtle fan like myself, right? I would be happily put in the box with other people who are Ninja Turtle fans. That is not a bad box to be in. However, if you put me in the box of, five-year-old boys 
because that's the typical stereotype of who loves Ninja Turtles, then I'm in the wrong box. So it's kind of, it's about, it's about the behaviour and what that comes in. And then again, relating it back to the Ninja Turtle thing, because that's what I love. Again, you can still put me in the wrong box because you've got me who love them for the nostalgic factor that they take me back to when I was a, a kid. And I still love them to this day for that reason. You know, kids who love Ninja Turtles these days love them because of the playing and the fantasy and the play aspect of it. So again, it's two completely different boxes. So I love finding the overlapping behaviours and putting people in they, the behaviour boxes because I feel that the boxes are more, more correct, you know, because you've done, you've done the data, you've done the data to prove that this is a behaviour, whether you're five-year-old, 50-year-old, you know, it doesn't matter your sexuality, your background. It's it's a love. It's a, it's a behavior. That's that's quite interesting. Yeah. Unfortunately, you have to sometimes do this. You have to try to look at aspects of a behavior. You can always look at the whole if you want to study something because you just have to find a way to categorize people and start making sense. It goes back to the whole thing of like human behavior being so difficult to study and humans being so complex that you... By, but by doing this, this extreme like categorization, putting people into boxes, you do lo- lose some of the, the things that make people interesting. But uh, unfortunately, I think there, there are some approaches, as I said, there's like individual lists, like psychology, where you just start looking at those differences as well to try to reduce this. But I guess it depends on what you do. Sometimes you have to put people into boxes. But it's, it's always good to know that when you do that, that doesn't always represent everybody. And that people can sometimes move from one box to the other. When it when it comes to things like personas, I, I find myself lately just using more of the jobs to be done approach because you, you know, as you said, there's, there's like sometimes you can, these people are just so fictional by trying to find representatives that kind of match the data that you have. You just come up with something that that's not really anyone. And, and it depends like, on how it's being used in a company. Like sometimes you can create issues and I um, I kind of prefer to know, okay, what are the people trying to achieve with the app? It doesn't matter if they're straight, gay, you know, I don't care what kind of what background they have. I just I just need to find out what they want from the product that we're designing. But um, to take it back to what Stacey said, uh, it, it is kind of a necessary evil. Any, any kind of science has to do it. You have to kind of try and find the commonalities. Otherwise... We don't really have the capacity and we can understand like humans without doing that. At least at this stage, maybe like in the future, we might have, I think some people have started to do that, like a more data-driven approaches that uh, have more categories or overlapping potential boxes or people can belong in multiple boxes. With the example that you gave about extrovert and introvert, it's actually a really good one because it used to be a black and white approach, but now actually people realize do you know what? There are quite a few like ambiverts, people that can be extroverted in certain environments and introverted in others, or they actually change throughout their lifetime. Like the idea that personality traits are consistent and you do the same throughout your life is not true. And do again, we started on like the different measures of personality. So this is another thing. Psychology has been, at, I don't know if you if you're following the news over the last like two decades or like a decade or 15 years, many of the popular studies in psychology have been debunked. For example, learning styles, they don't exist. It's a myth. Like loads of uh, educational programs and stuff have, have, that have been built around the idea of learning styles, but this is not an approach that works. 
And the same thing, like there's lots of examples like that, but that's because psychology is a science and no science is absolute. Like no science is infallible. That's that's part of what makes it fun. Like you, new research, you know, makes us realize that what we knew about the world and humans is, is wrong. And, and for me, that's exciting. I can understand how it might make some people like lose their faith, but you're not supposed to have faith in science. You just have to follow the studies, follow the latest research. I think that's I think it's really interesting there's something really um interesting even though just back to a point you were talking about earlier Maria about the UX and psychology stuff and how we sort of forget that that psychology is in in UX and I wonder as well if there's something a word like around the word psychology itself seems like such a scary word um I know if you'd have said to me like years ago oh yeah you know you you sort of do a bit of psychology in there I'd be like no I am not smart enough to even know the word psychology and that's kind of psychology in yourself as well right because people sort of hear this word that is traditionally like you said quite Freudian type uh words um you know your typical your chaise long with your your doctor and your you know like people go for that really stupid stereotypical look and, and feel but I guess that's that's the that's the beauty of this podcast in it it's it's opening up that um that world and that field to actually no be scared you know don't be scared of things that, that sound scary like psychology I know it sounds scary or what's the word sort of intimidating I guess it's quite an intimidating word but actually when you pick it apart it's it's so it's so interesting and it's the emotional side of it that I love that I, I find really really interesting in the the UX world how something how people can be emotionally changed by things like an app or a news story or you know something that they don't even realize that they're getting triggered by it but actually it could be a UX thing and that's the psychology of that as well it's 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 really interesting and it just it's quite hard hitting as well. Sometimes if you if you design something that has upset somebody, or you, or you're working in the NHS, like we've spoke about this before, like the NHS, or where I work in interactive investor, you're you're dealing with people's savings, their pensions. You know, if you if you say something wrong in an email, or you get a tone of voice wrong, that's you know you're messing with people's minds you always have in the back of your mind when you're designing that you're not just designing this because it's your job I mean yeah it's your job but you're designing this because you want to help people in, in the long run and you need to think about how that design is going to affect them I think that's definitely with the whole psychology side of it I think that's what I find scary personally if I was going to be real I do find that quite scary as a designer. And I think a lot of it came from, I was watching a documentary on Netflix. I think it was the one all about like addiction to like social media and it went into Cambridge Analytica. And at one point, a designer, uh, a guy on there, I'm not sure if he was a designer or not, but he said, it's up to designers to decide if if what they what they're doing is the right thing. Because, you know, the guy that invented the infinite scroll he regrets that now because he sees the negative side effects that that's had on people's mental health because it means that they're more addicted to scrolling through Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. And I think that's quite interesting. And I do think it's the psychology side of it that makes it a little bit scary because you are tapping in. And if you if you work for a company that their whole goal 
is to get people addicted to their art, whether it's gambling. I think gambling is probably one of the most controversial. But imagine being a designer and your whole thing is to get in to understand the psychology behind addiction and then to make people addicted to your art. This definitely comes, you know, I think as a designer, as as designers, we need to understand that we are designing these experiences and that as much as we want to design for good and we want to design the right thing. It's interesting you're saying that. Like there's I've actually turned down a handful of jobs in the gambling industry when people have, have headhunted me to come and work for them, which I find lovely that I've been headhunted for them. But I often wonder, that's me now, you know, years and years into my career now. I'm, it's took me years to get to where I am. I wonder if I'd have been approached when I was a junior, how it would have changed me, you know, when you don't have that sort of, I guess, wisdom or experience for your mind to be properly shaped you know if your first job's in in a world where it's it's a lot of dark patterns I wonder how that shapes shapes your career and I'm not judging it by any matter I mean so anybody who's listening who's who's in the industry is either for their own benefit or or you know otherwise just because it's your first job or whatever that that's fine in fact I'd, I'd love to hear it I'd hear the more people like that as well but I, I think we've all been very fortunate to be able to be in the industry learn the psychology learn the you know, have bad designs go out and watch people fail and go, oh God, that was my design and that never worked. And learn for that and actually turn down these positions. Some people aren't that fortunate. Some people don't, you know, some people need to take jobs because that's that's their job as well. So I'd, I'd be interested to see how how people think, um, I guess, how they feel in that industry. Yeah, again, I think like it's another area where psychology can potentially help because the the history of psychology is quite dark. As many of you probably know, there have been some psychologists that advocated for horrible things like uh, encouraging racism. And uh, that's also another topic maybe for, for a different episode. And that's one of the reasons why ethics is uh, it's a huge thing in psychology. You, For example, before you run any kind of study, you have to go through a committee and get approval for your for your research. And if it's something that involves vulnerable populations, it needs to go through like an even larger committee. For example, if you want to do study with the NHS, sometimes you have to go, that takes months and it's really frustrating when you're a psychologist, but it is there to protect people and ensure that, you know, you adhere to the street code of ethics and you don't harm anybody on purpose, you know. And that's something we don't have in tech. Like it's not like not just UX tech doesn't have those ethics. Some companies have started creating them, and I've seen like there are certain design teams that start have a rule, like a rule book, ethics that they have to follow, and then they base their designs try to to make sure you know they they stick to those, and that's a way to potentially avoid using dark patterns, or you know as I said like another thing that we can do as as Stacey said earlier is but actually if we create a product that's frustrating, there is a thing that is known as techno stress. So for example, if we cause lots of errors, like a user ends up seeing errors constantly when they're using our app, that can increase stress-related hormones, which can lead to lots of horrible health like complications that you know and we don't really want to do. So that's like a huge responsibility. So if we do, if we create a, an app that results in lots of users, lots of errors, then we're actually contributing to that person's levels of stress. So that's a huge responsibility. We're still, I don't feel that most places 
are addressing at the moment, including like some of the big companies like Meta and and I don't know if something that requires some sort of like government intervention or like some kind of higher authority to ensure that we do this. That's again a bigger conversation. From a psychology perspective, I don't know if you've seen, there's quite a few jobs popping up that UX researchers slash behavioral scientists roles. So they realize like the industry that actually some of the psychologists, not only they can help us with the research and the UX side of things, but they can also help us create more persuasive design and can help us create certain user behaviors by applying the psychological knowledge that they have. And this is becoming more and more common. And, and I, that's for me, I've, I've also rejected roles for, for reasons similar to what you said. Like they, I've been approached with people, they just want me to apply this knowledge to make people you know, use certain products or make certain decisions. Sometimes we can use them for good. For example, if you want to protect people's privacy, potentially using a dark pattern or, or exploiting the way that they're to, to do this, then that's that's potentially acceptable. But again, it 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 limits the free will in a way. It's 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 quite a tricky point. But we're going to be seeing more and more of these roles in the next few years. If you have a quick search, you'll see there's quite a few kind of behavioral scientists and that advocate for behavioral change design as well as just uh, traditional UX. It's interesting when you can take things too far right so what and what I mean by that is in my last role when we were designing bathroom software so the idea was that you you design your, your dream bathroom and you see it all you know 3D and it's all beautiful pictures really high high renders and it was really good really good piece of software and, you know, we wanted to make that as easy as possible. We've done loads of jobs to be done research. We, we really, really deeped into this, that, you know, we really dove into this. And we've done a, we a good research program and a load of research studies. And what we found was that people were struggling to make this, you know, fill this imagination gap. You know, they kind of knew what they wanted, but they wanted to see it in real without having to go through the hassle of a designer and things like that. So we knew that. And we were going, right, okay, we'll solve that problem. And we did. We solved it by saying, okay, tell us your kind of, the kind of style that you want for your bathroom, your colours, you know, you you just pick what you need and we'll put it all together for you. And that's what we've done. We packaged it up and at the end we went, ta-da, this is your dream bathroom. And we solved the problem, right? Uh-uh, wrong. People repelled it. They were like, what? Don't tell me that that's my dream bathroom. Like that, how do you, how do you know it? And then what they ended up doing was they, they made a couple of changes to the bathroom, undone the changes, put it right back to the bathroom that we had made in the first place. But because they then had felt that they had put a stamp on it and that it wasn't a computer telling them, you know, that this is what you want. It, it was an interesting, it was just an interesting research piece because although we had solved the problem, we had also then made the problem worse. And it was just a really interesting, like, but, but you told us this is what you want. And now you're saying this is not what you want because we've just, we put all this, back to what you're saying, Maria, we put this extra stress on somebody that we never realised that we were going to put on them because they were we were making them feel like we were pushing this design on you. And all they wanted was, and what it ended up being in the, in the, uh, the outcome was, okay, so we'll take you up to a point. And then we go, right, you put your finishing touches on. And that was the that was the sort of 
that was the final outcome. But it's really interesting. Anyway, sorry, long-winded waffle there to basically say it's really interesting that you think you can solve a problem, but actually you can sometimes take it too far and actually create another problem by solving the problem. So that's why it's really important to always always test afterwards as well and, and research research your research, I guess. Would that be the right way to say that? But um, yeah, just the psychology in that where you think you're really doing good and then you end up doing bad by doing good. That was a learning curve for me as well. I think what you said earlier, that, that was a really good, that was a really good example, Tina, because I'm thinking like you've, you've uncovered like a bias there. <laughs> that, you know, people have this need for control and there's like something called the illusion of control. So people, if they feel they have an impact on what's happening, even if they don't. It's like, you know, when you when you think that if you wear your lucky shirt or your lucky underwear that some people have, um, if they feel that they're they're more like, you know, just they, they think that they have a good illustration, they're more likely to be satisfied with it. And there's and it's also kind of similar to the IKEA effect. So if you sometimes by getting people engaged in the process of building something, they're more likely to appreciate the final product. So there are, as I said again, if you if you, for example, you work the psychology when you were in this particular research piece from the start, someone with a psychology background, they could have potentially like figure some of these things out before it even went out. I mean, oh, you might want you might want to let people have more control over it so that they're going to have a more satisfying experience in the end. But it is it is really, as I said, this is what this is what happens. You got people that have been in the field for for a long time, especially you know working in UX or design in general, and they. They kind of they end up like discovering all those things as they go. They might not have a name for it, but you do have a gut feeling. And then the next time you design, you know that oh, I shouldn't do that like that because last time this is what happened. And sometimes by having the knowledge of psychology when you start out, you you can potentially like avoid or you can never 100% predict human behavior because there's so many, again, there's so many biases in, in play that sometimes they contradict one another, but it gives you sometimes a head start. It's partly building a emotional connection, I feel like. I feel like Tina's story about people wanting to have their own personal touch on the, on the, the bathroom because that's a very personal environment for everybody. It's almost like that emo- emotional aspect of it. And, and there's many cases where, you know, when it comes to like psychology, there's like, I read a, a psychology piece about a rock where they asked how emotionally connected people were to a rock. And then they put some googly eyes on it and named it. And suddenly everyone established a way more emotional connection to that rock because it had a name and it had googly eyes. So I think, especially for certain software and products, you know, definitely stuff like Facebook and uh, and Instagram, you want to establish those um, emotional connections. And I think that really helps when you allow people to, you know, even just as basic as letting them have their own profile picture or letting them choose their own colours or choose their own name or kind of things like that that makes the experience more personal to them that they can they can form some sort of emotional connection to it's really odd to say that because it's odd to hear that you can form an emotional connection in a, in a way to like an app but I think it that it's not the same as with a person obviously but there is some form of connection being made but the, the more I'm in UX the more I'm realizing UX has been around since people psychology has been around since people I don't think I mean I, I know it's fine to say that terms were coined here there and whatever but, but I think 
definitely for me it's more about you know if you've got a if you if if you're capable of being emotional and capable of thinking or behaving behaving then UX has been around since you know Adam and Eve <laughs> yeah I guess like when people decided the first like think about the wheel and like yeah the, it's like yeah. you know why was the wheel invented you know efficiency and yeah. problem solving and make things better easier and then you know roads were once cobbled imagine driving in a cobbled road and then you know roads evolved like our whole world has evolved because because people's emotional states and problem solving and it's 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 a bloody minefield isn't it (laughs) you can go back for centuries and centuries I i think walt disney i felt was just kind of a bit of ahead of his time when he created the the parks for Disney. And I think a lot of that, what he created was rooted in the user experience. And I think, you know, back in the 60s, I think he really understood that even though he was building a park and it wasn't a software or an app or anything, he really understood that you needed to understand the psychology and and the people and, and things like that. He had guiding principles for his team of engineers and he called them Imagineers, which I thought was quite funny. And he would often say things like, know your audience, wear your, wear your guest shoes, communicate with colour, shape, form and texture. And he also envisioned a place where the latest technology can be used to improve the lives of people, which I feel like so much of that is rooted in like understanding people and what they want. You know, I think he understood like when you go to Disney, Disney World it's not just about how it looks it's all about how it smells and you know how it gives you a feeling how it gives you that emotional connection and it's really interesting to see that was before UX was coined but it's just been called many different names throughout history right so even though Imagineers wouldn't have been considered UX designers you could you could say that there's definitely an overlap between what they do and what we do I think throughout history it's just been kind of been called different things yeah, that's I why think... UX is a bullshit term. <laughs> Doesn't exist. It's in everybody's job and everybody's title, regardless of regardless of what you know industry you're in. You should be thinking about the experience. You should always be thinking of the end user, regardless if you're a programmer or a designer or or whatever. Because if you've if you've got your end users at the heart, you know you'll just you'll empathise more and build better products. Yeah, I think the difference in, over the lot that has happened in the last few years is the the emphasis like on methodologies that have improved. Because before that, people people were doing UX, but they were not always talking like in a systematic way to others. Some of them did. Some of them were like building something and probably asking feedback from their families, like and friends. Like something many many designers did that by by just default. By the, or or some people that work in design always. They ended up being designers because they were very empathetic and they could see other people's needs and they could see problems. But now I think uh, the last like, few decades, we have a more systematic way of doing it. And that ensures that you know, we include more users and we do it in a way that uh, reduces the, the amount of bias that goes into the process. So but I, I'm, I agree with you absolutely. Since we started creating products and tools, we, we were doing some kind of UX design because like how... How are you going to design a hammer that's functional? You have to think of like the ergonomics. And how would you do that? Well, just use your hand. And this happens like people have similar hand sizes. And, you know, there are things like that. And just by trial and error sometimes, 
so they kind of had their iterations just by <laughs> trying to and yeah so i agree the only thing that's changed is mostly like having a more specific methodology and the rules seem to be more clear now than ever before this episode of ux guide to the galaxy where we talked about the psychology of ux was brought to you by myself tina and maria thank you for joining us this evening and we hope to see you in the next episode